Part 3 The Second Scam Chapter 14 He's the One David Meister came from a family of engineers, and for many years he was inclined to honor that heritage. He went to the University of Delaware and earned a degree in chemical engineering. Meister cherished the certainty behind the finite, controllable science and math. But he soon recognized another certainty, which was that chemical engineering wasn't sexy. Meister's attention strayed. He kept reading news stories about the era's fearless prosecutors, who were cracking down on the New York Mafia's five families and the likes of Ivan Bosky and Michael Milken, the financiers who would go to jail for crimes related to insider trading. Meister was inspired. And if he was honest about it, lured by the flame of publicity. Abandoning engineering, he enrolled in law school. After graduating, Meister landed a job at a firm where he defended accused financial criminals for a few years. Then, eager to round out his resume, he became a federal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan. He worked under John Carroll, one of the lawyers who had prosecuted Milken back when Meister was in college. The experience cemented the new prosecutor's interest in financial crime, which he found more subtle and complicated than open and shut mafia cases. And his engineering background gave him an added advantage. He wasn't afraid of numbers. Meister soon returned to private practice, following Carroll to Skadden, Arps, Slate, Meager, and Flom, one of Wall Street's most powerful legal outfits. There, Meister became rich. But by 2010, he was itching for a new challenge. He had plenty of money, but he was nearly 50 years old and wanted to make sure he left his mark somewhere. Maybe he could try another stint working for the government. As it happened, Gary Gensler was in the market for someone to run the CFTC's enforcement division. He had grown sick of Obi, who he felt wasn't paying enough attention to headline grabbing cases. Meister didn't know much about the CFTC, but the world of former federal prosecutors, the world in which Gensler was searching for his top cop, was small and tight knit. He wanted an aggressive and ambitious individual who would take an expansive view of what constituted the agency's powers and would bring new urgency to the job. Before long, word reached Gensler that Meister was on the market. Then word traveled back to Meister to gauge his interest. He was intrigued and, after meeting the impressive Gensler, decided to take the job, splitting his time between CFTC headquarters and the agency's New York offices, two blocks from where the Twin Towers once stood. When Meister arrived in early 2011, the LIBOR investigation was one of the agency's top priorities. But it wasn't moving fast. No longer was the FSA the main impediment. Slowly but surely, information was starting to trickle across the Atlantic. The bigger problem was of the CFTC's own making. Its investigators may have been enthusiastic, but they didn't seem to be acting with much urgency. Meister was by nature impatient. He thought government bureaucracies tended to waste time on investigations. It wasn't that no progress had been made, but the LIBOR investigation was mired in a never ending cycle of data mining. Each time McGonagall, Lowe, and their small band of investigators found a piece of potential evidence, they socked it away, and then the search resumed. The way Meister saw it, the agency already had the goods, not just in the form of cold, hard data, but also the juicy phone calls and electronic messages. In which Barclay's employees talked about their manipulative schemes. All this additional forensic work struck him as unnecessary. Meister wasn't the only one to reach that conclusion. On the CFTC's ninth floor, some of the commissioners had come to view McGonagall, Lowe, and Obi as talented, dogged investigators who were unable to close the deal. They seemed too cautious. A tendency that had been reinforced by the agency's historical culture. The consensus was 
that they weren't the right people to be running a major federal investigation. Meister drew up plans to revamp the CFTC's strategy. Then a bombshell from Tokyo detonated. After salvaging their rain-drenched honeymoon with a shopping spree in Dubai, Hayes and Ty returned to Japan to pack their belongings. They had a small farewell party at the Windsor. Hayes, feeling nostalgic and recognizing that this was the end of an era for him, sought to patch things up with some former colleagues. Despite the end, I had a good time here and wanted to say thanks for bringing me over a few years ago, he emailed Pieri. It was a generous, arguably naive gesture, considering that Hayes by now knew about Pieri's elaborate efforts to destroy him. Pieri responded a few hours later, congratulating Hayes on his wedding and updating him on Donna giving birth to their second child, a boy. Pieri suggested that they grab beers in London at some point to reminisce about the crazy events of recent months. It's not the same without you and the team, for sure, Pieri wrote. I will remember those years with fond memories. Then Hayes and Ty departed Japan for the last time. Hayes left behind a large unpaid tax bill stemming from the millions he'd collected from Citigroup that year. At Citigroup, McCappin grew increasingly worried about his vulnerability to the expanding investigations. He wrote himself, for posterity, a long email with bullet points on what he knew and when about LIBOR. Daily submissions would try to be biased to the lower side, he said, without mentioning that the strategy was crafted, at least in part, with specific trading positions in mind. McCappin didn't see anything wrong with this. I know we have now heard this everywhere, but I was genuinely not aware of any formal policy-slash-guideline on these matters. With Hayes out, Reed called it quits too, just as he had said he would years earlier. But a few months into his second retirement, he got a phone call from the head of ICAP's Wellington outpost. The office was suddenly doing a brisk business in New Zealand bonds and other products. Would Reed be interested in coming back? Bored at home, he took the bait and returned. It wasn't the same without Hayes around. Now he had multiple clients, none of whom he knew well. The screaming was gone, but so was much of the fun. At R.P. Martin, despite the loss of a second crucial client, spirits remained high. Kaplan, feeling generous, doled out a round of bonuses to the Yen Derivative Squad in late September. Farr pocketed the equivalent of $31,000. Lee Aaron got a five-year contract extension and a $16,000 bonus. The cash-strapped Gilmore also collected $16,000. Citigroup's compliance and HR departments concluded that Hoshino had just been following Hayes and Chekere's orders, and that while the impressionable young man hadn't acted as he should have, he had learned his lesson. He certainly was contrite. His punishment was a written warning, essentially a second chance. As for Chekere, he handed in his resignation shortly after Hayes was terminated. It was voluntary, but Citigroup had told him he might be fired if he didn't step down on his own. His cell phone and email were quickly disconnected. Always the salesman, Chekere described his resignation to Hayes as an act of protest. He said he did it in disgust. Chekere wasn't terribly worried about the future. He was already in talks to join a huge international hedge fund, Brevin Howard, as a trader in its Geneva headquarters. Before leaving Tokyo, Chekere had one last thing he wanted to do, take a shot at Pieri, whom he had come to loathe ever since spying on his conversation in the bar. Chekere called a friend at UBS and told him exactly why Hayes had been fired. Was UBS aware, Chekere asked, that Hayes and Pieri had been doing the same thing during their time together? Given the escalating nature of the government investigations, he suggested, perhaps it would be in the Swiss bank's interests to take a look at Pieri's and Hayes's records. 
the message was passed up the chain of command at UBS. And, miraculously enough, it wasn't shunted aside. Instead, the bank decided that someone needed to trawl through Hayes' communications to see what they contained, exactly the sequence of events that had worried Hayes back when he had left UBS a year earlier. Who would handle this distasteful task? Not, it turned out, the compliance department or the bank's legal team or the outside law firm, Allen and Overy, that the CFTC had forced UBS to hire. UBS instead told Pieri to investigate himself and his former underling. Pieri decided it would be simplest to focus solely on Hayes' communications with Alikulov. He quickly reported that, lo and behold, Hayes and his mentee had been trying to move the bank's LIBOR submissions to benefit their trading portfolios. That was enough to prompt UBS to take things more seriously. Pieri was relieved of his investigative responsibilities in favor of a major U.S. law firm, Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. It didn't take long for the attorneys to grasp the depth of the problem. It wasn't just a couple of Tokyo traders freelancing as LIBOR manipulators. The wrongdoing was institutional, stretching from Tokyo to Singapore to London to Zurich, and involving not just low- and mid-level traders, but also their managers, their managers' managers, and even some high-ranking executives who either knew what was going on or should have. And it involved numerous banks and brokerages, a systemic racket. Gary Spratling, a mustachioed partner from Gibson Dunn's San Francisco office, delivered the bad news to UBS executives. If the bank didn't play its hand right, it was headed for billions of dollars in financial penalties or worse. After all, prosecutors in the United States seemed to be dying to give the public what it wanted by filing criminal charges against a major bank. But Spratling, a master tactician and a specialist in antitrust law, had an idea. Antitrust laws in many countries included provisions granting immunity or leniency to those who were first to report problems. In the United States, antitrust regulators even give partial amnesty to the second company to tattle. If UBS raced to the authorities in the United States and elsewhere before anyone else did, and not only confessed its own sins, but also promised to help build cases against its rivals, it might win leniency. Spratling made it clear that there didn't seem to be other good options. So, starting in December, UBS and its lawyers embarked on a worldwide damage control tour, meeting at least a dozen antitrust authorities and banking regulators in Switzerland, England, the United States, Japan, the European Union, even Canada. At each stop, the bank owned up to what it had found, what looked like an industry-wide effort to skew yen LIBOR and other iterations of the benchmark, and supplemented its admissions with a sampling of the emails, chat sessions, and recorded phone calls that the internal investigators had unearthed so far. The bank offered to provide extensive cooperation, including by serving up UBS employees as witnesses and countless gigabytes of electronic evidence in exchange for full or partial immunity. There was a seminal moment for investigators. Here was one of the world's biggest banks, delivering what looked like a ready-made case on a silver platter. Until now, the LIBOR inquiries had focused mainly on two things, the practice of lowballing and the idea that individual traders at a handful of banks like Barclays were doing bad things in isolation. The investigations had been confined to a narrow time period, 2007 and 2008, and only the U.S. dollar flavor of LIBOR. Now it was clear that the suspect activity occurred over a much longer period and in multiple LIBOR varietals. And, most important, it looked like there was a network of collusive behavior. That meant the scandal was much bigger than a random, haphazard attempt at manipulation, and it demolished banks' claims that this was the work of just a few bad apples. 
Spratling had reason to be optimistic about his plan. One reason was that he knew how the system worked. Before joining Gibson Dunn, he had spent 28 years working in the Justice Department, rising to become a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in charge of prosecuting international cartels, precisely the type of case that UBS was now owning up to being part of. Thanks to his long government career, Spratling had fostered some useful relationships. One of those was with his former subordinate, Scott Hammond, who, by 2011, was the top criminal prosecutor in Justice's Antitrust Division. Hammond had helped devise the leniency program for self-reporters that Spratling now hoped to take advantage of. The two men remained close. Spratling's strategy worked even better than he reasonably could have hoped. Antitrust authorities in Washington, Brussels, and Bern tentatively accepted the bank's deal and offered it at least partial immunity. But the bigger victory, the more stunning one, was that UBS somehow ended up in a position to set the course of the unfolding investigations. As part of its agreements to cooperate, UBS volunteered to handle the massive task of sifting through millions of pages of records and interviewing witnesses. That appealed to the regulators, who were constrained by tight budgets and busy schedules and didn't want to squander scarce resources on a wild goose chase. But it also meant that crucial work, the act of laying the first bricks in the investigative foundation, was outsourced to a very biased party. UBS and its high-priced hired guns would now be the ones determining which evidence and witnesses showed up on regulators and prosecutors' radar screens. If UBS didn't discover certain evidence or decided for whatever reason not to share it with the authorities, well, it would probably never come to light. So, before sending out subpoenas to UBS to ascertain the potential roles played by its senior executives in the scandal, the CFTC asked Gibson Dunn how to frame the legal documents. The law firm insisted that the subpoena's scope be narrowed to only look at formal boardroom minutes and other official copy documents, not emails, chat transcripts, phone calls, or handwritten notes. And the CFTC agreed, bowing to the firm's assertion that anything wider would be unmanageable. When Gibson Dunn reported that UBS had destroyed all of the recordings of employee phone calls in Tokyo, there was nothing much that investigators could do. Nor did they complain about the fact that UBS had blacked out the identities of certain people, presumably executives, included on various internal email chains that the bank handed over. And they had to trust Gibson Dunn's matter-of-fact determination that eight million of the documents that UBS had initially flagged as relevant to the investigation simply wouldn't be available to U.S. or British regulators because they were housed on the bank's Swiss computers and therefore fell under the country's stringent bank secrecy laws. This was a fantastic turn for UBS, which could now attempt to confine the investigation to an isolated group of wayward employees who no longer worked for the bank or at least already had been suspended. Sure, mistakes were made, but the guilty parties had been cleared out and the bank had come clean. Even better, UBS could steer the investigators away from the corner offices. And so, when the CFTC asked Gibson Dunn to come up with a list of individuals who should be on the subpoenas that the agency was preparing to send to UBS, names that would determine the search terms that the bank used to sieve through millions of pieces of internal communications, one was especially prominent, Tom Hayes. After leaving Tokyo, Hayes and Ty flew to Barbados. The newlyweds stayed at Sandy Lane, a luxury beachfront resort frequented by celebrities. After the trauma of the past few months and the washed-out honeymoon, they felt they deserved the sunny break, although it was marred by a blowout fight after Hayes, who uncharacteristically had consumed multiple boozy drinks, caused a scene accosting a retired Scottish soccer star, Gordon Strachan, whom he spotted at a gala dinner.
Back in England, they moved into a large apartment in a converted sugar warehouse in an increasingly gentrified London neighborhood. It was just down a busy street from where Tai had lived before she moved to Tokyo. The flat in Sugar House was much nicer than anywhere she'd lived on her own, though, decked out with polished wood and with a well dressed doorman standing sentry downstairs. Hoping to return to the banking industry, Hayes got to work looking for a new job. Around the turn of the year, he went with Reed and another former colleague to watch a cricket match in Sydney with tickets paid for by ICAP. The excursion had been lined up before Hayes was fired, but he regarded it as a good omen that the tickets hadn't been revoked. He wasn't that toxic. Once back from Australia, he started dialing up his old industry contacts to see if there were any nibbles. The first, in early 2011, came from Bank of America. After cleaning up the mess left by its hasty Merrill Lynch acquisition, the North Carolina based bank was back in expansion mode. In January, Bank of America flew Hayes in for two days of interviews in its new skyscraper in Midtown Manhattan. As a reference, he listed Checkeray, who had told him he'd be happy to help. In late March, Hayes emailed Citigroup's HR woman in Tokyo, the same one who participated in his firing, and told her that she would be hearing soon from my future employer for a reference. The HR woman said Citigroup would confirm Hayes' dates of employment and wouldn't say anything else. Hayes and Ty confidently prepared to move to New York. But when a Bank of America executive happened to mention the plan to one of Hayes' former bosses at UBS, the job disappeared. Deutsche Bank seemed to have gotten cold feet too. A second interview was canceled. You weren't careful enough, Mark Lewis explained. Hayes emailed him a few more times, hoping something had changed. Lewis didn't respond. Hayes wasn't stupid. He could see what this meant. His financial career was over. It was a sad, sobering moment. But life went on. Hayes had never learned to drive. Before moving to Tokyo, he had taken lessons, but he spent most of his time sitting in the passenger seat. Explaining his tortured love life to the bemused driving instructor. In 2011, at age 31, he decided it was time to get a license. Despite taking lessons, he flunked the test. On his second attempt, after committing the entire British Highway Code to memory, he passed. Having transferred his obsession with all things Porsche to one of its German rivals, He celebrated by buying a dark gray Mercedes SL500 convertible, a blue four door Mercedes AMG sedan, a dark blue Mercedes minivan, and a black Mercedes 4x4. He gave a Mercedes coupe to his younger brother Robin, a grade school teacher who had been driving a beat up Volkswagen. Robin appreciated the gesture, although he was self conscious driving a flashy 60,000 pound car. Through his school's working class neighborhood. That fall, Hayes enrolled in a one year MBA program at Holt International Business School in London. He recognized that one of his weaknesses, after a career as a solitary trader, was working with others. In fact, that had been a weakness going back to his adolescent days. I've got to learn how to be a normal individual, he thought. Rather than just some guy who just does what the hell he wants whenever he wants. He aced most of his classes, putting him on track to finish second in his class of aspiring business leaders. Even before UBS came clean, the CFTC and some Justice Department officials had heard the name Tom Hayes. He'd appeared in snippets of conversations that UBS previously had handed over as part of its simulation of cooperation. And he also had scattered cameos and chat transcripts that one or two other banks had produced for the agencies. But he hadn't been a central figure. Then, in January 2011, when UBS lawyers showed up at the CFTC offices, Meister scanned through some of the materials the bank was disclosing. Hayes was all over the documents. He came across as a typical Wall Street guy, arrogant and angry, a bit of a bully. Meister imagined him living large, 
partying into the wee hours at raucous Tokyo nightclubs. It would feel good, he thought, to nail this guy. Obi, who with Meister's arrival had been demoted to running the enforcement department in the CFTC's New York office, had his doubts. Sure, Hayes looked like the most enthusiastic and skilled practitioner of LIBOR manipulation in Tokyo, but Obi recognized that this man was a bit weird. He seemed to exhibit hallmark traits of someone with Asperger's syndrome, obsessiveness, naivete, oblivious to social niceties, and inability to see things from other people's perspectives. All of that, Obi felt, made Tom Hayes a good target to try to flip. He probably would have plenty of dirt to dish on his superiors, and, emotionally removed, less loyalty to anyone but himself. Meister, however, was in a hurry. He wanted the first batch of LIBOR cases to reach fruition by early 2012. It was an ambitious deadline, but it would be a huge achievement to mark the end of his first year at the CFTC. Plus, it would help pacify the impatient and micromanaging Gensler, who wanted regular, sometimes daily, updates on the investigation's progress. Around the same time as the CFTC visit, UBS and its squadron of lawyers showed up at Justice's antitrust office, which sat in the department's main headquarters on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington. But neither the bank nor the antitrust bureau alerted the fraud team in the nearby bond building, and William Stelmach was furious when he found out. Doughy-faced and nebbishy, his pleated pants hiked up higher than was fashionable, Stelmach had joined Justice's Fraud Division in July 2010. His nerdy appearance belied his tough pedigree. He had spent the prior several years as a federal prosecutor in New York. When he arrived in Washington for the new job, he was thrust into Justice's nascent LIBOR investigation. Stelmach, along with his colleagues Robertson Park and Dennis McInerney, had begun to see the case as the vehicle for sating the public hunger for Wall Street prosecutions. The trick was to find some individual bankers who could be served as red meat. There was a history of tension between justices' fraud and antitrust sections, generally friendly competition, but sometimes not-so-friendly clashes over jurisdiction. With UBS's visit to antitrust, Stelmach perceived Spratling and the bank as trying to spark an internal justice turf war aimed at getting the antitrust team, led by Hammond, to grant immunity and leaving the fraud section out in the cold. Stelmach complained to Spratling, who denied that was his goal. One morning in early spring, trying to make peace, Spratling's team returned to justice, but this time to the bond building for a belated presentation to Stelmach and his fraud colleagues. The gathering was held in a well-appointed conference room on the fourth floor, designed as a venue for greeting foreign dignitaries, a far cry from the dingy flag room. No sooner had the session begun than a squabble broke out. Spratling was under the impression that his pals in antitrust had given assurances that, thanks to the bank's cooperation, nobody at Justice would file charges against UBS or its employees. That's not how Stelmach and Park saw it. A grant of immunity from antitrust covered only that section's investigation, they explained. It didn't bind the fraud division. It was inevitable that someone was going to get charged. After all, one of the main points of the LIBOR investigation was to prove that U.S. prosecutors could finally nail someone. And, based on what the prosecutors had been picking up from their counterparts at other agencies, UBS and its former employees were starting to look like the most promising targets. Spradling, trying to convince the prosecutors not to charge either his client or its current employees, volunteered to bring UBS employees to Washington to serve as Justice's guide dogs. He also walked the lawyers through hundreds of pages of evidence. UBS had certainly done its homework, matching up internal communications 
and Hayes' requests to brokers, with actual movements in UBS's LIBOR submissions and occasional fluctuations in the benchmark itself. They weren't huge moves, only a couple of basis points in one direction or another, and it wasn't possible to definitively prove causation. It was conceivable that UBS's submissions might have moved without Hayes' pressure. Another drawback, it involved a Japanese, not an American interest rate, which meant it had less impact on, and therefore less cachet, with the U.S. public. But for the first time, Stelmach and Park thought they were looking at evidence of real manipulation, the type of stuff that could actually hold up in court, and that might have affected the wide range of institutions and individuals that had purchased derivatives to protect themselves from volatile interest rates. The damage to one person's credit card bill might have been negligible, but when you added up all of those credit cards, all of those car loans, all of those mortgages, well, it didn't look quite so minor. And the blatant nature of the emails and chat snippets resolved any lingering doubts about whether the evidence could be open to a more innocent, benign interpretation. Hayes, in the course of that hours-long gathering, emerged as the obvious target. He's the one, Park told colleagues afterward. That was just as UBS wanted it. In subsequent meetings, witnesses provided by UBS would describe Hayes, slim and not quite six feet tall, as large and physically intimidating. The shepherd's pie anecdote resurfaced, casting Hayes as potentially violent. He was beginning to resemble a boogeyman. Nothing had been formalized, but in their heads, Stelmach and Park finally had their man. On the afternoon of Friday, March 11, 2011, a violent earthquake rumbled up from more than 15 miles beneath the surface of the ocean off Japan's northeastern coast. It shook buildings all over the country, but the worst damage came from the sea. The shifting underwater plates unleashed a tsunami of biblical proportions, with a wall of water 30 feet high bulldozing Japan's coastal prefectures. It ruptured a nuclear power plant. More than 16,000 people would perish. In Tokyo, Alikulov felt the quake and its aftershocks and then watched, awestruck, as news reports showed the extent of the damage caused by the tsunami. He decided it was time to get out of town. A few months earlier, UBS had suspended him from his job. He was still getting paid. That way the bank could ensure that he and others in similar situations would cooperate with the Americans. But his career prospects were in doubt. It was a jarring, embarrassing turn for someone who not long ago had thought he had a bright future as a trader. After a few glum days, he started trying to figure out what to do with his life. As a first step, he went back to Kazakhstan. Then he decided to learn yet another language. He set off for Spain, keeping in close touch all the while with the Washington criminal defense attorney, a tall buzz-cut trial lawyer named Nate Meiskins, that UBS had hired to represent him. Meiskins told him he was eventually going to need to come to Washington to meet with FBI agents and justice prosecutors. So, after Alikulov returned to Tokyo from Spain, just in time for the earthquake, he packed his bags and, without telling anyone, got on a plane to Washington. It was all such a blur that he forgot to bring a suit. On the car ride into town from Dulles International Airport, Alikulov stopped at a department store and dropped $500 on a new suit so that he could look presentable when he showed up at the bond building. He charged it to UBS. After all, this trip was on behalf of his employer. By the time he arrived in Washington, Alikulov had worked himself into a lather, convinced that this trip would culminate with him in a jail cell. The easygoing Meiskins, whose clients ranged from bank traders to Justin Bieber, told him to chill. All he had to do was cooperate, he explained, and justice would promise not to prosecute him. But Alikulov wasn't wild about that idea. 
He knew Hayes by now was one of the main targets. Alikolov didn't much like Hayes, but he knew his former boss regarded him as a friend, and the thought of knifing someone in that situation made him a little queasy. Plus, he was genuinely fond of Ty. When the time came for their appointment at the Bond building, Myskins had to physically push Alikolov out the door to walk the few blocks down New York Avenue. Even when he got there, Alikulov seemed to have trouble explaining what he'd actually done wrong. Gradually, though, he overcame his compunctions. He told himself that he had an obligation to UBS and its thousands of employees to help resolve this mess, and spent dozens of hours serving as a much-needed Sherpa for the prosecutors and FBI agents. When you got down to it, everyone who had been part of the effort to manipulate LIBOR, Hayes, Pieri, Farr, Reed, Alikulov, Goodman, Chekare, and on and on, even UBS itself, was a traitor, no matter their particular place in the market. Hayes had been odd and abusive, but it had been worth tolerating because everyone was getting paid well. Morals were never part of the equation. Feeling sorry for the loser on the other side of your winning trade was career poison. And so now, too, it was time to trade, to come out ahead, to find the weak one, the Muppet, and grind him into dust. There was no need for a group meeting, a half-time huddle. Those who had worked with Hayes knew that just as he'd been the key to the vault, he was now the key to a very different door. If someone was going down, UBS had to make sure it was Tom Hayes. And if Tom Hayes was going down, everyone who had worked with him had to do whatever he could to make sure Hayes fell alone. The good thing was that there was at least a little truth in the lie. Hayes had, in fact, been central to much of the LIBOR skewing effort. But no orchestra is made up of a single musician. Hayes, Alikulov told the justice investigators, had orchestrated the whole thing. What about current UBS employees and executives? Alikulov downplayed their involvement. Hayes, he made clear, was the mastermind. Back in London, Ty was a couple of months pregnant. The baby was due in October. Between severe morning sickness and doctor's appointments and her decision that they needed to move, the Sugar House flat wasn't child-friendly, nor was the surrounding urban grit, their lives were hectic but on track. They started shopping for a house in London's exurbs. One day in March, Hayes received a Facebook message from Alikulov. We need to talk. He said the Justice Department wanted to speak with him and that he wanted to get Hayes' advice on what to do. Hayes still hadn't spoken to any regulators, and he was eager for any scraps of information he could pick up about the course of the U.S. investigations. He sent Alikulov his cell phone number. A couple of days later, on a mild, damp afternoon, Hayes and Ty were in the prenatal wing of London's University College Hospital, a sleek, modern building with green-tinted windows. They were there for Ty's 12-week scan, a crucial exam that would show if the fetus had any serious abnormalities or health problems. As a midwife moved an ultrasound wand over Ty's growing midsection, Hayes' cell phone rang with a call from a number he didn't recognize, and that didn't appear to be from England or Japan. While Ty lay there, anxious, Hayes stood up, walked out of the room, and answered the phone. It was Alikulov, who said he was calling from Kazakhstan, hence the long, strange phone number on Hayes' screen. As Myskins had promised, Alikulov had been granted a non-prosecution agreement that stated that justice wouldn't go after him as long as he cooperated fully. The FBI agents initially had tried to convince Alikulov that they hadn't been able to track down Hayes' phone number. He'd be doing everyone a big favor by reaching out to his former boss over Facebook to establish contact, the investigator said. The sooner they got in touch with Hayes, the better it would be for him. One thing led to another, and on this day, 
Alikulov was sitting in his lawyer's office in Washington. FBI agents had devised an elaborate system to make it look like the call was coming from Alikulov's native country. Audio of the call was being recorded and piped live into a room at the Bond building, where prosecutors and FBI agents sat around a conference table listening. They had prepared a list of questions for Alikulov to ask Hayes, hoping to get his former mentor to acknowledge that what he'd been doing was wrong, or to make some other sort of incriminating statement, perhaps encouraging Alikulov to lie or destroy evidence. Alikulov, trying to fight back a debilitating sense of anxiety and betrayal, started the call by repeating what he'd said in the Facebook message. Justice wanted to schedule an interview. Should I talk to them? What should I tell them? The U.S. Department of Justice, mate, you know, they're like the dudes who, you know, put people in jail, Hayes answered. Why the hell would you want to talk to them? Her ultrasound finished. Ty walked into the prenatal wing's waiting room. Its walls covered with posters featuring cherubic babies and signs barring phone calls. Hayes was pacing and talking on his cell. Ty could tell from his expression, his whole face was screwed up in a confused, agitated look, that something strange was going on. Alikulov had just mentioned that he had printed out emails in which Hayes had asked his subordinate to help move LIBOR. What should I do with them? he asked. Why are you printing emails? Hayes asked, furrowing his brow. Ty started listening carefully to his end of the conversation. They were clearly talking about LIBOR and the Justice Department. She motioned for him to get off the phone. When that failed, she whispered urgently for him to tell Alikulov not to destroy evidence or to lie. If this was a trap, she didn't want her naive husband stumbling right into it. Hayes complied, then asked Alikulov whether the Justice Department wanted to talk to him. Alikulov, his adrenaline surging, said he didn't know. Hayes, growing apprehensive about Alikulov's carefully worded queries and nervous tone, asked whether he was recording the call. I did this too, Alikulov said. Why would I record it? With Hayes still on the phone, Ty took an elevator downstairs to collect the test results that would show whether the fetus was at risk of Down syndrome. She couldn't believe she was going through this alone. The results showed virtually no risk of the syndrome. Angry, despite the good news, she rode the elevator back up and found Hayes still on the phone. He was in the process of telling Alikulov to just blame his managers. That's what I'm going to do, Hayes said. At the Bond building, FBI agents thought that Hayes' suggestion that Alikulov shouldn't talk to the investigators might be enough for an obstruction of justice charge. A couple of days later, though, they decided to take another shot, hoping for cleaner evidence. Hayes was finishing up lunch at the Cookfield pub in East London with his stepbrother Ben O'Leary, who worked at a nearby hospital, when his phone rang. The Cookfield, housed in a 19th-century stone inn, had a beer garden in the back, and Hayes stood there in the early afternoon sunshine. Alikulov asked what struck him as a series of leading questions. Should I tell them about your friend at RBS? Alikulov wondered. Brent? What's he got to do with it? Hayes asked. Should I tell them about your friend at Deutsche? Well, I wouldn't mention it, Hayes said. But if they ask, you should tell them. In any case, he added, everything was done in writing, so it wasn't much of a secret. In 1986, in response to what became known as the Roskill Report, the British Parliament created the Serious Fraud Office, consolidating what had been a national patchwork of anti-fraud forces into one central government body. The report, named for the senior judge who helmed a special committee, had found that the public no longer believes that the legal system in England and Wales is capable of bringing the perpetrators of serious frauds expeditiously and effectively to book, and that the overwhelming weight of the evidence laid before us 
suggests that the public is right. In relation to such crimes, and to the skillful and determined criminals who commit them, the present legal system is archaic, cumbersome, and unreliable. The newly launched SFO's mandate was to investigate and prosecute complex, large scale fraud and corruption cases, attacking the stock swindlers, bribery schemes, and manipulative practices that were rife in the city at the same time that Margaret Thatcher's government was encouraging middle class people to invest their savings in the market. Housed in a rundown office building on an out of the way street north of the city, the SFO got off to a fast start. Its probe into the 1991 collapse of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International resulted in the convictions of several bank executives. But by the 2000s, the agency's statistics were looking soft. Each year, it prosecuted perhaps two dozen individuals, most of them relatively small time offenders, notwithstanding the agency's goal of going after only the highest level criminals. The agency was dogged by internal scandals, doling out lucrative severance packages to ousted employees and spending a small fortune for its chief executive to travel back and forth between London and her home in England's Lake District. Perhaps worst of all, high profile investigations faltered in sometimes spectacular fashion. In 2006, for example, facing intense diplomatic and political pressure, Not to offend an important British ally, the agency abandoned its investigation into whether British arms manufacturer BAE Systems had bribed Saudi Arabian officials for lucrative military contracts. The continued investigation would have been devastating for our relationship with an important country, Prime Minister Tony Blair explained. And at dawn one morning in March 2011, The SFO and police forces raided a series of residences and arrested two well known property tycoons, the brothers Robert and Vincent Chenguiz. The arrests, part of an investigation into the collapsed Icelandic bank, Kupthink, were probably the SFO's highest profile actions ever, and they quickly became its biggest embarrassment. The SFO eventually dropped the case, admitting it had misinterpreted evidence. Involving the Chenguiz brothers. For its troubles, the agency became known in some quarters as the seriously flawed office, and the government drew up plans to strip it of much of its funding. Despite its woeful reputation, if you worked for an entity that was pursuing fraud investigations involving British culprits or victims, the SFO was a crucial way station. Protocol dictated that you at least check in with the agency. So, in May 2011, two months after the Chenguiz arrests, an official at the United Kingdom's antitrust enforcer, the Office of Fair Trading, contacted the SFO. The antitrust agency had been looking into LIBOR manipulation since the prior December, when UBS had showed up out of the blue to turn itself in. Over the next several months, UBS employees had provided testimony and evidence. To help the OFT build a case, similar to the processes going on in other world capitals. Now, the OFT wondered would the SFO be interested in joining forces to bring the investigation across the finish line? Following a preliminary phone call, the OFT mailed over a dossier of evidence, forming what it thought was the backbone of a promising fraud case. Exactly the type of investigation the SFO was designed to tackle, and one in which much of the investigative legwork already had been completed. The SFO took the matter to its executive board. The response eventually came back. At this time, the SFO cannot commit to using their resources on this case. Its tail between its legs, The underfunded agency was trying to reorient itself towards simpler cases. Robertson Park at the Justice Department had a similar conversation with the SFO that spring. He informed his London counterpart that Washington had in its sights a British citizen who looked increasingly like the ringleader of the LIBOR scandal.
Would the SFO care to get involved? No thanks, came the immediate response. Park hung up, puzzled by the agency's indifference. Shouldn't they be clamoring for a piece of the action? On May 9th, Terry Farr was invited into a meeting room at R.P. Martin. Only a few weeks earlier, he had called Hayes to check in, and the pair made plans to catch up over beers. But when the appointed date came, Hayes backed out. He had a doctor's appointment. They rescheduled. The next time, Farr had to cancel when a client asked to get drinks. They never managed to meet up. It was too bad because Farr had been eager to hear more about how Hayes had handled Citigroup's internal investigation. As word of Hayes' downfall and the intensifying government investigations had spread, R.P. Martin had opened its own review into the matter. Mustard's hated compliance squad dubbed it Project Green and, with the help of outside lawyers, collected volumes of chat transcripts emails, and recordings of phone calls. When Farr arrived at the meeting that May morning, he was asked to describe his 12-year employment history at R.P. Martin. He told the lawyers about how he'd first met Hayes, who was looking for a junior broker to mold. Farr downplayed the importance of the relationship. They only met every 18 months or so in Tokyo, he said. He didn't mention that they'd spoken every day for years. Then the meeting was over. There was nothing more to it. Jim Gilmore was brought into a similar meeting the same day, with the same result. Nothing. Two months later, in mid-July, Farr was called in for another meeting. This time he was briefed on the broadening scope of the brokerage's internal investigation, which was examining possible violations of antitrust and other laws. Farr was informed that R.P. Martin had been contacted by the CFTC, the European Commission, and Canadian regulators. The firm's internal searches had turned up an overwhelming amount of material that was of interest to the regulators and that Farr hadn't bothered to mention in his previous meeting. R.P. Martin's lawyers laid out two options. He could switch into another job, something far away from the Yen desk, or he could be suspended but still collect paychecks. Neither option sounded disastrous. Farr decided to go on paid leave. Then, for the next six months, nothing seemed to happen. A few other dominoes began to fall. At RBS, Paul White and Neil Danziger were suspended after the company turned up troves of embarrassing and potentially incriminating communications in an internal investigation that it named Project Zen. An investigation got underway at ICAP, too. In September, Wilkinson was on vacation when Fritz Vogels, the manager in London, called. He told Wilkinson to cut his vacation short and get back to meet with the firm's lawyers. Around that time, violent riots were engulfing large swaths of London. Protesters vented their rage about police abuses by torching and looting businesses. I can't believe it, Reed emailed Wilkinson. I'm here in Wellington looking at London burning. The end is nigh, Wilkinson responded. The men wouldn't speak again for years. Kweku Aduboli, who attended the University of Nottingham at the same time as Hayes, and then joined UBS as a summer intern, had climbed through the bank's ranks. Despite starting in the unglamorous back office, where he earned a paltry £33,000 salary, roughly $60,000, the cheerful and charismatic Ghana native had managed to scratch his way up to an actual trading job in London. By 2010, the 30-year-old had been promoted to the rank of director, his salary had jumped to £110,000, and he was on track to pocket a handsome £250,000 bonus. But the next summer, his career started to unravel. Every trade he executed, every market prediction he made, turned out dead wrong. His weren't the only positions that were curdling. His entire team was losing money. 
Rather than wave a white flag, Aduboli concocted an elaborate cheating scheme. He took advantage of UBS's rickety compliance and risk management systems and entered fake offsetting trades into the bank's computer systems to conceal the fact that his risk levels were soaring to out of control heights. At first, the ploy worked. It bought him and his colleagues some time, and they managed to make up most of the money they'd been hemorrhaging. But then the bleeding resumed, and this time there was nothing Aduboli could do to staunch it. By August, they were staring at a $3 billion loss. We need a miracle, he posted on Facebook. The miracle never came. On a Monday afternoon, he gathered his team at a bar across the street from UBS's offices and told them he was prepared to take the fall. He went home and emailed his bosses. Confessing what he'd done. Then he returned to the office and explained the mechanics of his scheme. Late that night, UBS called the police, who came to arrest him and hauled him off to prison. UBS announced a few days later that Aduboli's trading had cost the bank $2.3 billion. The next week, as questions swirled about how UBS management possibly could have failed to notice such massive and problematic trading, The bank's CEO, Oswald Grubel, handed in his resignation. For a second time, UBS got to work arming investigators with evidence against an employee, casting him as a lone, rogue operator inside an otherwise law abiding company. At his trial, Aduboli pleaded not guilty to the criminal charges of fraud. In a drab brick courthouse on the south bank of the River Thames, The prosecution painted him as a greedy, reckless fraudster whose selfish actions had cost UBS shareholders billions of dollars. Aduboli's defense was that he was a scapegoat for the bank's out of control, risk crazed culture. He had learned everything he knew from UBS, including the ways to navigate around the bank's haphazard internal checks and balances, and everyone knew exactly what he was doing. Indeed, Other UBS employees had referred openly in emails and electronic chats to his fraudulent strategy. Some colleagues had participated. The jury didn't buy it. He was convicted and sentenced to seven years in prison. With Ty's due date only a few weeks out, Hayes continued his tradition of attending every Queens Park Rangers game, home and away. She had been frustrated with Hayes' conduct throughout her pregnancy. He hadn't been very sympathetic when she was largely bedridden in the first trimester, and now he wasn't showing any indications of adapting to their soon to change life. Was he oblivious, or did he not care? Baby Joshua arrived shortly after 11 p.m. on October 7, 2011. The love struck parents nicknamed their cuddly newborn Mr. Marsupial. Which was eventually shortened to Mr. Soups, and finally Soupy. Hayes dressed Joshua in soccer gear. QPR fan, just like Daddy, Ty captioned a photo on Facebook when the baby was two weeks old. That was sweet, but the exhausted Ty was less pleased when, two weeks later, Hayes announced that he was going on a road trip to watch QPR play. You just don't get it, she shouted. And yet, by and large, everything seemed normal. They socialized with Hayes' business school classmates. To accommodate their expanding family, in December, they bought a large house on a quiet road in the village of Woldingham, a 30 minute train ride from central London. The seven bedroom old rectory was their dream home, spacious yet homey, with raw wood floors, except in the bathrooms whose tiles were heated. The huge kitchen, equipped with top of the line appliances, a wine refrigerator, and an island countertop made of volcano granite, opened into a dining room with sweeping views of the countryside. They paid the £1.2 million, nearly $2 million price in cash, using a chunk of Hayes' Citigroup signing bonus. Before they moved in, they started a major renovation project, building a new three story wing. And redoing much of the house's electrical wiring. They paid using some of the £960,000 in profits 
that Hayes recently had racked up trading currencies and stock indexes through an online brokerage account. Hayes, for all his sins, remained a prodigious trader, by all accounts one of the best at his craft on the planet. He found his success gratifying, proof to himself that his investing savvy wasn't contingent on him sitting on a noisy bank trading floor. He could do it just as well from the comfort of his own home. On December 16th, Japan's Financial Services Agency issued a pair of two-page press releases announcing the filing of administrative actions against UBS and Citigroup for trying to manipulate Yen Libor and Tibor. These were the first times a regulator had disciplined a bank for skewing an interest rate benchmark, the inaugural fruits of UBS's global confessional circuit a year earlier. But while the Japanese orders were a milestone, they weren't much to behold and therefore attracted little media attention. The regulator didn't impose any financial penalties. UBS and Citigroup just had to stop trading certain derivatives for slightly less than two weeks. The actions didn't name any individuals. The UBS order referred anonymously to Hayes. The Citigroup document only referred to a character identified as Trader B, who, along with Director A, engaged in what the regulator described as seriously unjust and malicious behavior. Hayes was Trader B, and Checker A was Director A. McCappen, referred to simply as the CEO, was accused of having overlooked these actions despite knowing about them. Hayes and Chekere drew solace from the fact that nobody from the Japanese regulator or the banks had contacted them as part of the investigation, and they hadn't been publicly named. Still blissfully unaware of the intensifying U.S. and British investigations, the two men figured this was the end of the matter.